Hi, I'm Peter Malcolmson, editor of OnTennis.ca, the official online publication of the Ontario Tennis Association. Today's On Tennis podcast guest is American tennis great James Blake, a top junior, an NCAA star, top five ATP pro, foundation founder, the Miami tournament director, a former ESTA foundation chair, and an all-around great guy. First of all, we want to welcome you, James, for uh, taking Thanks. the time uh, to do our On Tennis podcast. And I guess the first question we want to ask is, uh, what do you do in your spare time? Uh, well, I don't seem to have a lot of spare time. I, I joke with friends that I'm the, the, the busiest retired person ever. So I, I, stay, uh, I stay pretty active. And um, really what takes up the most of my time, why I don't have spare time, is I got two little kids. I got two girls, seven and five, and they take up uh, a lot of my time, a lot of my energy, and I wouldn't have it any other way. It's so much fun being one of the dads that's at soccer practice, that's at swim meets, it's at you know everything that, that the girls are doing. It's, uh, it's so fun to be a part of. And um, anytime I'm home, I'm with, uh, I'm with the kids as much as I can be. And I noticed you didn't mention tennis. <laughs> well, that keeps me busy when I'm on the road, which is, uh, which is great. I, I, I traveled to, to do some tennis commentary, um, working with Tennis Channel, and then I play some of these, uh, these events, um, like this one here, the, the Invesco series events. And um, then the Miami Open takes up a lot of my time. So that's, that's the work life. And then when I'm home, I feel like when I'm off, uh, that's when I would have spare time, but it, a lot of it is taken up with my kids, and I love that. Very cool. Um, so, you know, actually, for, for a guy who's still under 40, you've accomplished a hell of a lot both on and off the court. So um, your professional career and off-court off, off accomplishments are well chronicled. Um, we just want to talk to you a little bit more about the grassroots uh, side of things. Um, uh, we're a grassroots organization here at the OTA. We like to help develop the kids in, the, in, the young, um, in their younger years and then pass them on to, to become the next Dennis's and Bianca's and that sort of thing. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about your early days. Um, yeah. where, where did you start tennis and when? Um, who was your first coach? And tell me some details about your junior career. Yeah, well, I first learned how to play at a, at a program that was all volunteer-based, at the Harlem Junior Tennis Program. Um, my first coach was really my mom and dad. Um, they liked playing tennis. They, I joked to them very often that the only reason um, I played tennis because they were too cheap to pay for a babysitter when they played. So I would go up and see them playing and want to be like them. And um, they would toss me a few balls at the end, and my brother and I, my brother's three years older than me, and basically they always could consider a babysitter just passing us a ball and a racket. They would give us a ball and a stick, anything, and we'd just play tennis, play baseball, play whatever. And um, I fell in love with tennis, the individual aspect of it from early on. And um, both my parents, it, that was our like family activity, it was Sunday afternoons. We would go play as a family, play tennis together. And um, I really enjoyed it and got better and better and, and enjoyed it more and more and started not doing any of the other things, quitting baseball and basketball and anything else I was playing and focusing more on tennis as I got to be about 12, 13 years old. And really my first actual coach outside of my parents was Brian Barker, who ended up coaching me till I was about 29 years old on tour. And I couldn't have been luckier to have someone that was uh, a mentor that was that good of an X's and O's coach that also uh, seemed to really care about me as a person. And that's why we're still close friends. Great. Now, t talk a little bit about when you got into competitive playing as a junior. You, I, I gather you're playing USTA events mm -hmm. and then perhaps some international events as you got older and that sort of thing. Um, how, who was your, were you heavily involved with the USTA program at that point or how did it all work? <laughs> I played USTA events, but I definitely wasn't, I wouldn't say I was heavily involved in it because I wasn't very good. So I didn't, um, I didn't have the exposure and I still remember 
I, I kind of steadily improved. I was also very little when I started. I probably started playing in the 12s and I was okay, but everyone grew and I didn't. And I was not very good in the 14s. Started getting better in the 16s and in the 18s, I think I won the national clay courts and uh, one of the, the coaches from USTA called me the next day and said, this is actually the first time I've ever had a, one of the major surface uh, national events won and I didn't know who it was. So they, had, they hadn't, I definitely wasn't on their radar until I won that. And then before I knew it, I went on kind of a, a streak of winning a lot of matches in a row and then went to uh, our nationals in Kalamazoo and made the finals there. And before that, I'd never played an international event. So I played an international event um, right before the Junior US Open and they, they let me play the Junior US Open and that was it for my junior career. I, that's the only Grand Slam I ever played. Um, and that was my first ever pro event was they, they gave me a wild card. I didn't realize that making the finals of Kalamazoo got me a wild card into the qualifying of the US Open. So I played in the qualifying and it was all really new to me. So everything was, I was um, really working hard to possibly be a good college player. I thought that was my, my next step and the next step in the journey. Pro was so far from my mindset at that point. I thought it was so far removed from the level I was at. I really hadn't realized how much I had improved in those last couple of years that I was actually close to being that level of, of pro players. So um, it happened pretty quickly for me, but it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. I'm glad you filled in the gas because I have to admit, I was doing a little research on you. I was looking at your junior career. Go, wait a minute. Yeah, there's there's no not like hundreds career. of tournaments there. And I'm, and I'm no. going like, that's not the typical pathway. No. But you obviously developed late. But yeah. uh, before, you know, as you developed into your last couple of years of juniors, mm. obviously caught the eye of universities. And, and yeah. I guess at a certain point, you had to make a choice. Uh, yeah. Am I going to go pro? Am I going to go to school? And, and yeah. you ended up at Harvard. Yeah. Uh, so tell me a little bit about that. So I, I, um, I've joked with my old coach who just finally retired um, from Harvard is uh, the best recruiting he ever did was recruiting my brother because he, uh, he got my brother to go to school at Harvard and I followed my brother there. And so he didn't have to recruit me very much. I went up and visited my brother a lot. I knew all the guys on the team. Um, I loved that team atmosphere. It was, it was a, a ton of fun. And the big thing for me at that point, I felt like, okay, now I'm at a point where maybe pro is a possibility in the future. I didn't realize how quickly, but I thought, okay, but can I really get that kind of training at Harvard? And seeing my brother there was the best thing for me because I knew um, how good the players were there and how accessible the facilities were and the, the weight training program. And um, there's actually another a couple of pros that trained in the area as well. So I knew I had the, the ability to, if I wanted to put my mind to it and put in the hard work, it was there for, for the taking at Harvard. When a lot of people I think might've been scared off by an Ivy League school and not thinking it was possible to, to have a pro career after that. So I, that was, I, I jokingly, but somewhat serious that if my brother hadn't been there, I don't know if I would have been there as well, but um, I loved it and I had a great time being there. Now, who got the better grades between you and your brother? My brother, not even close. He <laughs> likes to remind me. I mean, aside from the tennis uh, results, he, he likes to always mention that he's he's taller, he's uh, better looking, he's smarter. He's got you know he's got he's got a lot more going for him. But I I, I happen to win a few more tennis matches than him. <laughs> That's funny. Now you know um, we have a, um, at the OTA we have a lot of juniors going through our system, and, and they have. They're faced with the same decision around that age, 17, 18, or 16 mm. even. Mm. Am I going to go pro or yeah. am I going to go to university mm. on a scholarship, mm. either a partial? It's harder for guys these days, it obviously. It is very difficult. It's a tough decision. Um, what yeah. advice would you give to young players in the OTA system, for example? Well, for me, I, I thought it was, first of all, everything's an individual decision. Uh, it, what works for one doesn't necessarily, there's no formula that says this is the exact uh, plan A, plan B, plan C. You know, you don't go from point A to point B to point C that easily. It's not. It's not always easy. So, but I always thought if you're at that 
decision-making point, if you think, okay, should I turn pro? Should I go to college? If you haven't had already had success at the pro level, I still remember thinking of a few people. Andy Roddick comes to mind. He was winning challengers. He was at a point where he was winning matches and tour events when it was time to make that decision. All right, that's an easy, that's a no-brainer. I remember Sam Querrey, um, I was hitting with him quite a bit when he was thinking about making that decision, and I was kind of on the fence because I could tell he was good, but he hadn't had much success, and then he went out and he won two challengers in a row. And so, okay, if you can win challengers, you know what, college, you don't need, you don't need that if you don't want to. If you're, if you're not so excited the way someone like Steve Johnson was, he wanted to be a part of a team, he wanted to be a part of USC, he wanted to win a lot of uh, national championships. If you want to do that and it makes sense for you, then go for it. But if it doesn't make sense because you've had that much success, um, I totally understand that with Sam Querrey. That was the right decision. It was the right decision for Robbie Ginepri, Marty Fish. They were already having success. But if you don't, if you don't feel like you're already having that kind of success and you know there's probably going to be a year or two of struggling on tour, it makes more sense to get some more wins. And I know they say you, you learn a lot from your losses, but you also learn how to win matches in college and you learn to be part of a team. So I think that's really important. Um, so if you're not at the stage where you're, you're going to really struggle uh, on tour, if you're at that point, I think college makes a uh, makes a great case for getting free training. Um, you get a great camaraderie with your team. You get good coaching usually, as long as you pick your college right, and, and you get a lot of wins hopefully. And if you if you know, it gives you peace of mind. For me, it gave me peace of mind knowing that I could dominate at that level. So okay, now what else is there for me to do aside from going pro? Right, got it. So once once you turn pro, you enter the game at a time when there's a whole bunch of big stars on the ATP tour, including some great American players like Roddick, Courier, Agassi, Sampras, etc. And mm -hmm. you mentioned a couple others, Marty and those guys. Yeah. Um, you're a little younger than some of them, but you were definitely part of that sort of golden age of American <laughs> tennis, like when there was so many good American players battling it out. Yeah. What was it like being an American player at that time? Oh well, I feel like the expectations were so high, and I feel like I was I was sort of the um, I don't know if I was the bridge, but I was that sort of um, I don't know, maybe I call it the aftershock of the the that st that stage that was Andre, Pete, Courier, Mal Washington, Todd Martin, Michael Chang, where I mean that's one of the greatest generations of players from one country ever, and then myself and Andy Roddick and Marty Fish come along and Robbie Ginepri and Taylor Dent, and they say okay. Where's all your Grand Slam titles? These guys are winning 14 and 8 and 2 and 4, and how come you guys can't win Grand Slams? And all these guys, Federer and Nadal, and, you know, they're pretty darn good. It, it's tough to, it, it was tough to break in. And so I feel like we were, um, I don't know if we were as appreciated because a lot of people were expecting us to be the next Sampras and Agassi. And I always had Andy as kind of the, the lead the leader of the pack and he was he was bearing the brunt of all that pressure that was that was put on us to be the next Agassi the next Sampras and um, Andy did an unbelievable job withstanding all that pressure and we did it in a different way from what I heard about that generation prior they had a lot of animosity they had a lot of tension between them and they were they were fighting for grand slams they're fighting for titles Andy and I even if we had had the careers that Andre and Pete had I, I like to think and I have a really good feeling with Marty and Robbie that we're still all really close that at that point we wanted to always show that no matter what we did on the court we were going to be friends because we kind of made those friendships we forged those playing the challengers you know driving to tulsa oklahoma together to play um, a fifty thousand dollar event and sleeping two in a room and going to dinner at outback every night those kind of <laughs> things so we were always said you know what no matter what our groups change everything changes our success and failures change but we still would always make bets or jokes and say, hey, whoever, if, if I play Andy in an event, whoever wins, 
pops for dinner that night. You know, we're still going out to dinner together. We're still at the end of the tournament. Whoever loses is cheering for the other guy to win. And that's the way Andy and I were our whole career is if I lose, I want him to win the tournament. If he, if he loses, he calls me and wants me to win the tournament. And we, we did it in a very friendly, uh, we had friendly rivalries. Right. Right. Excellent. Now, after a few lean years in the U.S. Um, with Serena aside, <laughs> there seems to be a resurgence in young Americans on both sides, you know, yeah. like um, uh, Fritz, Opelka, mm. uh, TFO, Kennan, and of course, Coco. Yeah. Um, as you know, um, there's a lot of pre a lot of pressure on those. What, what what advice would you give to those young, the next gen? I mean, it's going to be a good generation of young kids. For yeah, sure. I hope it is. But I also think that the fact that there's quite a few of them, there's a group that makes a big difference. I think you know Andy and I pushed each other. Marty, uh, Robbie, they they help push each, uh, push us all, whether it's in a friendly way or in a not so friendly way. But I think on both sides, having a group, it makes a big difference. Seeing kids you grew up with training. Um, breakthrough makes a big difference to know, hey, I can do this. Yeah. If they can do it, I can do it. I think even that group with Andre and Pete, when they saw Chang kind of break through and win the French Open, said, wait a minute, that's the same kid we've been training with um, you know, down in Florida. This is the same kid that, that I've been beating in practice. Now why can't I do it? And now Jim goes out and do it, and Pete says, why can't I do it? And they all kind of feed off that. And I think um, if Opelka breaks through, I mean, he may have – um, the biggest upside just because he's a seven-footer with that huge serve that could beat anyone on a given day. If they see he can do it and they know they've beaten him a hundred times in practice, well, okay, now why can't I do this if I'm Francis Tiafo or why can't I do this if I'm Taylor Fritz? I can win these matches and I think that's going to make a big difference. They're all great friends, so I think it's going to go well. And the, the young women from America, my goodness, there's a lot of talent there. Between Coco Goff, uh, Katie McNally, Sophia Kennan, um, Sloan, Madison, the ones that are sort of in their prime as well. They got uh, quite a future of American, American women. So I got to ask you about the Canadians too, though. Yeah, you got it. You were in Ontario, but um, as you know, we've had some recent success with every, even from Bouchard and Milos, mm -hmm. Dennis, Felix, and of course Bianca. Mm -hmm. It's funny, but when uh, when we get our U.S. broadcast feeds up here, the mm -hmm. American broadcast, maybe you included, <laughs> might say they feel they think it's kind of odd that these Canadians are playing anything other than hockey. But all of a sudden, <laughs> you got a bunch of them. So what yeah. what, are you, what are your thoughts on the Canadian? group right now well i mean for one thing i think you got to give uh got to give a little bit of credit to dan nester i mean i think i think a lot of these kids looked up to him and saw what he did and um he, he's uh w he was one of the guys on tour that everyone loved uh joking with and and goofing around and he was a fun guy but he was a he was a stalwart on tour i mean he was there for 25 years he was on tour so um just that exposure and seeing it and seeing that it's possible for these uh canadian kids that they can play tennis instead of hockey i think that made a difference and then milos having a lot of success pretty quickly you know he had that huge serve and was made a, a pretty big um, splash on the scene right away uh, and so now for Felix to see that and Dennis to see that and, and Bianca I don't know her as well to know how much she was affected by the the men on tour but uh, but Bouchard breaking through and being an, I mean an absolute phenomenon for a year when she did so well in Australia and then did so well at Wimbledon um, so I think it's it, they are continuing to, to push each other uh, but there's just a lot of talent. I mean, sometimes, sometimes these things happen in cycles, but um, to see Felix and Dennis, I mean, that kind of talent is, is really impressive. And then Bianca come through, and she's, I mean, so unique. 8-0 against top 10 players. Your first eight matches, you're, you're going to win against top 10 in the world. I hope she doesn't wake up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, for her sake, I just hope she stays healthy. Uh, I mean, that was the, the issue after Indian Wells. And, um, you know, selfishly as a tournament director in Miami, I was happy she was playing in Miami. But I think for her own best interest, she needed to take some time off 
and, and let, sure. listen to our body. Sure. Um, so we're the OTA is currently um, in the early stages of build of planning to build a high performance center for Ontario athletes. Mm. Obviously, USTA built Lake Nona, which mm -hmm. is an unbelievable place. I would mm. uh, I haven't visited yet, but I've seen tons of pictures. Um, what do you think about um, that site as as far as US tennis moving forward? Is it gonna is it going to help the growth of tennis? Is it going to help the high-performance athletes? Just give me your thoughts on the whole. Yes, yeah, so I've been down there, and it is really impressive. It's got everything anyone could possibly need. If you're a junior player and you go down there and you see the way pros are training and you see the resources there, the recovery rooms, the gym, the amount of courts, the different surfaces, uh, you know, that's really incredible, and that gives you everything you need. The challenge, I think, for USTA is just flat-out geography. It's just a huge country. Um, so to say that everyone should come there when you've got Andy Roddick that was born in Nebraska, me that was in Connecticut, Marty Fish that was in Florida, Robbie Ginepri that was in Atlanta, and then Taylor Dent that was in California, you got too many uh, places where not everyone wants to be in one spot, which is why they also still have Carson out in California. So I think they have to be realistic about the fact that not everyone um, wants to be in Orlando, although that is if they want to be that if they want to be there they're welcome um so i think that's great and i think they're accepting of that instead of trying to force everyone to be in one spot because it's just not it's not possible it's not a, a country like france where you can have everyone very centrally centrally placed in paris because that's still only a couple of hours from anywhere sure. where someone yeah. can be so i think there's a difference in it's great that we have this huge population but it's also difficult to get them all in one place because it's so spread out. And I think Canada may have the same issues. It's, you know, just it's a huge country and um, it doesn't have the same population we do, but it's got the same uh, area. So it's tough to bring everyone into one spot. Makes sense. Um, so um, talk about the uh, your role as Turner Director of the Miami Open. New home. I mean, yeah. unbelievable, yeah. different facility that yeah. I've ever seen. What, just tell me about your vision for the next few years and the future of that tournament. So the facility really excites me. My first year uh, on the job was at the last year at Crandon Park, and then to move to the Hard Rock Stadium was a huge opportunity. And just there's so many chances to make it better. And I think we started out, the big thing in the first year was to make sure there were no major hiccups. And I think we, we kind of crossed that bridge. We, we didn't have anything major go wrong, the, nothing that we didn't, you know, see coming uh nothing major so now now it's about getting it better seeing how it went the first year everything went pretty well so i think we gotta we can still there's still things we can improve and the great thing is we've got the space that was the big thing in crandon park was we just didn't have the space to expand we didn't have the ability to give the players what they wanted we didn't have the ability to get more courts or do anything that we needed um so now it, at the hard rock stadium we've got the the luxury of the, the suites there, the, the amenities of a, of a football stadium that seats 60,000 people. So we've got a lot, the traffic patterns are gonna be better because they're set up for 60,000 people. We've got so many more um, options for ways to help the players and make it better that I'm excited about each year, we're gonna find more and more things to improve and hopefully the players are just more and more excited to come back there. Excellent. Um, finally, you're here today for the RPIA championships competing against Courier, Ginepri, Roddick, How's your game these days and uh, <laughs> any predictions for tonight? Uh, my game is very competitive once I get out onto the court. The preparation is not nearly the same as it used to be because I'm not out there practicing a whole lot. But um, when I get out there, I still love to play and I love to compete. Um, it seems like I think Jim was the one that told me when I first uh, started in these events. He said, you know what? The shots that you were good at, you're usually still going to be good at. The ones that are bad, though. <laughs> 
they only get worse. So um, I try to hit as many forehands as I can now because that, that stays with me. And uh, somehow the, the, the legs are still there. It's just the, the shoulder it doesn't have quite as much on the serve, and that's a little, a little more painful. But um, I can still, still get out there and play yeah. some, so it'll be fun tonight, and uh, we'll see how it goes. I don't know. You might be the youngest out there, are you? No, I'm the, I'm the second oldest. Oh, you're Robbie, Robbie and Andy are both younger than me. Well, you're aging well. Uh, yeah, that's I'm all getting, I can say. <laughs> I'm getting old. <laughs> well, listen, James, it's, it's been great talking with you. Thanks for yeah. taking the time and, and for all your insights and uh, all the best in the future endeavors, and good luck tonight. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it.